Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 81 for the 3rd 3rd of July 2013. The topic I'm going to talk about today is whether the speed of light changes. First, to get it out of the way, yes, the speed that light travels will change based on the substance that it is moving through. Light in a vacuum moves faster than light in atmosphere, which moves faster than light in water. What I'm talking about in this episode is the claim made by some people, primarily young Earth creationists, that the speed of light in a vacuum changes, and that it has changed a lot in the 6,000 year history of the universe. That's really one of the only ways that they can get modern astronomy to fit into a 6,000-year time frame. Because this episode is geared more towards debunking the young Earth creationist claim, I think it's important to understand some of the context. Why, if the speed of light is 300 million meters per second, does the universe have to be old? The most basic reason is that stuff is far away and light traveling at the speed of light takes time to get from there to here so that we can actually see stuff. We know, for example, that the sun is at least 8.3 minutes old because we can see its light and it is 8.3 light minutes away. We know that the next closest star is at least around 4.3 years old because we can see it, and it takes 4.3 years for light to get from there to here. We can directly measure the distance to stars through geometry of Earth's orbit out to about a thousand light years or so, so we know that the universe is at least 1,000 years old. By using some standard types of stars, we can then use direct geometric distances to get distances out to many millions of light years. Or even just the size of our own galaxy, we can see stars out to tens of thousands of light years away with very little assumption other than the speed of light being constant, or physics working the same way here as it does on the other side of the galaxy. And hence the problem for young Earth creationists. If you have objects that are over 10,000 light years away, then how can the light get here and the universe still be under 10,000 years old? Some might say that the smart creationists simply don't try, where I have smart in quotes. If pinned down, then they'll say that God created the light and root to Earth to give the appearance of age. This is known as the Omphalos hypothesis and is one of the four main ways that creationists answer this distant light problem, and it was formally proposed in 1857 by a guy named Omphalos. Generally, creationists might also just fall into the broad category of not caring how God did it, just blind faith that it will work. In other words, we have a God of the gaps. It's the creationists who are at sort of kind of the science-minded level who care about this issue. And the main way that they try to solve it is to argue that light used to be moving really, 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 really fast, and now it's moving really, 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 really slow, relatively speaking. Or at least this was the main way that they answered it back in the 1980s. There are two other hypotheses that have been proposed, one of which I'll also briefly mention in a moment. Since I think most of you will forgive me if I reach my conclusion first and then go into their evidence, what this is really a form of is special pleading or wishful thinking. There's really no reason at all to think that the speed of light has changed. And we've looked, but that's a bit that I'll talk about in maybe five minutes. 
The issue is that creationists need it to have changed, based on a literal reading of a book compiled over the course of several thousand years by pre-scientific people. Therefore, to get science to somehow sort of kind of fit into that interpretation of that compilation of books, the speed of light must have been faster in the past. Or there must be some appearance of the speed of light having been faster in the past in order to get everything to work out. Hence, this is a pretty clear case of special pleading and wishful thinking. But they do have an argument to make. Several different versions exist with more or less complicated math allegedly backing them up. As I said, I'm only going to talk about this most basic claim in this episode to illustrate the point, this one that was popular in the 1980s. More complicated versions of how to explain the starlight problem exist. For example, some claim that we were sprung from a black hole, so time was slower or something in the past closer to the center of the black hole, so that light could move faster than the time moved for us near the center, but the light from millions of light years away could then have the time to reach us because we're at the center of a black hole, or we started from the center of a black hole. That idea was known as the white hole cosmology, and it was advocated starting in about 1994 by creationist Russell Humphreys. The simplest argument that creationists make is similar to their argument of Earth's magnetic field. They look at a few measurements for the speed of light that have been made in the past, they show that people got larger numbers back then than we do now, and then they say, therefore, the speed of light has decreased. This is known as the C, as in the letter C, decay model, or sometimes written as CDK. That's the letter C, the letter D, the letter K. It was first systematically formulated by creationist Barry Setterfield, I believe he's Australian, sorry guys, in his 1981 book, The Velocity of Light and the Age of the Universe. It was championed for a while, and I've linked in the show notes to an Answers in Genesis article that I think was Setterfield's, or Setterfield's original argument, or at least this Answers in Genesis article was written by Setterfield at the same time that the book came out. What is really needed for this to work right is for light to have been literally millions of times faster in the distant past, 6,000 years ago, than it is today. And happily, Setterfield is happy to comply, and his fit reached a value of 5 times 10 to the 11th power times faster back in 404 BC. In other words, about 6,000 years ago, light in a vacuum traveled about 500 billion, that's with a B, times faster than it does today. If you were to look at and or graph the data in his data tables, there is one measurement from 1675 that is much faster than we get today, by about 0.5%. It has large error bars, but not enough to overlap today's value. I would say that they just underestimated them. There's another measurement from 1728 with no error bars that gets a value 0.4% faster than today's. There's nothing else in his table until 1871, nearly 150 years later. That's where it's 0.2% faster than today's value. After that, the values are slightly faster for a decade or two and then overlap with today's measurements. This seems kind of to make sense. Based on his table of historic data, it's gotten about 0.5% slower since the very first attempts to measure it only 340 years ago. And you can fit a decay function to it, or an exponential sinusoidal decay function, which is what he did.
The nature of any decay function is that the decay is slower as you go forward in time, and it's much faster as you go farther back. This again is all based on Setterfield's data table. As you might have suspected, this is called cherry picking, as in choosing the data that fits the preconceived notion or the story that you want to tell. For example, there are at least two estimates of the speed of light that were done between his first two, the ones in 1675 and 1728. Christian Huygens, a very famous Dutch astronomer, estimated the speed of light at 26% slower than the current value. Sir Isaac Newton, a very, very famous physicist, in 1704 estimated the speed of light as about 5 to 15% slower than the current value. There's also an 1849 measurement that was faster than the 1675 measurement, but that wouldn't fit the exponential decay, and an 1862 one that's slower than today's value. Yet, Setterfield just picked the 1675, 1728, and then he goes straight to 1871 values. Why didn't he include the other ones? One could also ask why he chose to fit an exponential sinusoidal function. I mean, the reason is that it's what's needed to get light to be a lot faster in the past while still kind of fitting the data now. But when I look at his data table, it fits a sigmoid function very, very well, where the speed of light was stable and fast a few hundred years ago, then dropped rapidly just at the time when we started to be able to measure it well in the late 1800s, and then it's a fairly stable value today. My point is that not only did he cherry-pick the data that he used, but he cherry-picked the way that he fit the data in order to get the answer that he wanted. And yet this was very popular when it came out, being really the main way the creationists explained the starlight problem for roughly a decade. It's also still sometimes used today, although most creationists don't adhere to it. One reason that creationists today don't follow it is contained within a debunking article from, you'd never really guess, the Institute for Creation Research itself. The ICR article that I'll link to in the show notes doesn't have a publication date, but it clearly goes through the issues that I just related in terms of cherry-picking the data and the fit function. You know that you're in trouble when your own group of crazies is kind of against you. The second reason is more direct. Since the invention of the laser, we've been able to measure the speed of light to very, very high precision. Lasers were invented over 50 years ago. We've had more than enough accuracy since the invention of the laser to measure the decay that Setterfield modeled. It hasn't happened. And that's actually a really nice thing from this. You can actually make a prediction, a very simple one, from his model and test it. He fit data, he can then extrapolate that curve into 50 years into the future, or actually 20 or 30 years from when he wrote it, and then see if the speed of light does change according to that model that he created over the next however many years. The problem with Setterfield stuff is that it hasn't changed. The speed of light as measured by lasers over the past 50-ish years or so has remained a constant. It has not decayed in the way that Setterfield predicted. The third reason that most don't quote this explanation today has to do with the implications. I've said it before on this podcast, and I'll say it again. Pseudoscientists consistently try to claim that scientists are in their ivory towers 
and they don't look at the implications of what they do for other things. But it's them, the amateur or armchair scientists, who can be general enough in their studies to put everything together. I'm not saying that Setterfield claimed to be this or to do this, but this is an excellent example of how a pseudoscientist did just what other pseudoscientists claim that scientists do. As in, the implications of changing the speed of light don't just apply to how long it takes light to get from point A to point B. There's a lot of other stuff, like, say, how quickly fusion works. If the speed of light were 50 billion times faster 6,000 years ago, then that would mean that the sun would have emitted energy at a rate of nearly 1 billion times more than it does today. Similarly, the heat from radioactive decay inside of Earth that keeps it warm today would have heated the planet so that it would still be a liquid rock. There are numerous other implications, but I think the point has been made, that basically changing the speed of light doesn't just change how long it takes light to get from point A to point B. But could the speed of light actually have changed? While lasers today have shown that, at least here, the speed of light hasn't changed in the last 50 years, it is a valid question and area of research as to whether the speed of light was different in the past, even just by a teeny tiny bit, or if it's different in another part of the universe. And many have tried to measure this. They can measure it because the speed of light is part of what's known as the fine structure constant, or alpha in physics, the Greek letter alpha. Alpha also has things like the charge of the electron, Planck's constant, and an electric constant or magnetic constant, depending on how you write it. Any change in any of those parameters will change alpha. Any change in alpha will change many things in basic physics, such as the energy level at which different atoms and molecules absorb and emit light. Hence, we can measure the spectra, the light emitted, by distant stars very carefully in order to determine if they show any sign of alpha varying. Some scientists did that back in the early 2000s and found no change. A team in 1999 looked at very distant quasars and found results suggesting that alpha has very, very, very slightly increased in the last 10 to 12 billion years. Some of the creationist sites that I found while looking for information for this episode trumpeted that result. The change was five parts in around 100,000. Another study found that it might have changed in the last 2 billion years by 5 parts in 100 million, based on experiments in nuclear reactors. Another group in 2010 found that it may have been larger by 1 part in 100,000 roughly 10 billion years ago. While these suggest that it might have changed, other research studies have found that it hasn't by studying the same kind of distant phenomenon or experiments in nuclear reactors on Earth. As a scientist, to me it means that this needs more research in a systematic way in order to nail this down, and it needs to be replicated, since the results are too haphazard to really say much of anything. As a skeptic, I would say that this is consistent with random scatter or noise, and it will very likely converge to zero. As a podcaster talking about for this episode whether the speed of light is constant, I can say emphatically that the speed differences needed to get the results of Setterfield to make the universe under 10,000 years old is definitely ruled out. 
all of the experimental evidence points to the conclusion that if the fine structure constant has changed, and if it's changed because the speed of light is changing, then it's by a very small amount. New news this episode relates to episode 69, the solar neutrino problem, which was also a Young Earth creationist episode. The gist of that episode was that the neutrinos that should form in the sun during fusion weren't detected at Earth, but when it was found that neutrinos could change type, all of the neutrinos were accounted for. The new result from a large collaboration of over 500 scientists around the world shows that while we've known for a decade or so now that neutrinos can change or oscillate in some ways, we didn't know if they could in another way. This experiment shows they can. I realize that that may sound somewhat really kind of sort of vague, but going into more detail to understand it would take several minutes, so I've linked to the article in the show notes, so if you're interested, head on over and take a look. There's no Q&A this episode, but if you would like to submit a question for consideration in Q&A, please use any of the feedback methods available, although the easiest is likely to send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. Instead of me reading feedback for this episode, I'd like to ask for one item of feedback from you, the listener. Coast to coast clips. Too much, too few, or just right. And I know that some of you, actually most of you, do not listen to this episode just as I put them out. So if you're listening to this and it's not July 2013, or even 2013 at all, please feel free to send in feedback on this question. With feedback done, it is time for the puzzler, where I attempt every episode to attempt to ask a critical thinking question based loosely, attemptedly, on the material discussed in the main segment. The scenario last time was this. On its current orbit, could Mars ever appear as large as our moon? If not, why? And, if not, how close would it need to be to Earth to appear as large as the moon? Congratulations goes to Warwick, with honorable mentions to Kitsune and Lori. Lori, I think, is actually the first person to answer the puzzler from Finland. The short answer is no. And it's an emphatic no. And yet this is an email that tends to go around every few years, starting back in 2003 when Mars was at its closest to Earth in something like 60,000 years. In fact, my aunt, the same crazy one who was talking about the Freemasons and the CIA and other things, uh, she sent me this email about two or three years ago as well. Warwick traces it to a poorly worded article that stated at the time that if you look at Mars through a telescope with 75 power magnification, Mars would look as big as the full moon does with the unaided eye. To me, that's not only a misleading article, but it's a really stupid and pointless comparison to make. To figure out if Mars could look as big as the moon without a telescope, you can use very, very basic trigonometry. Or you can use ratios, since the angles are pretty small. The basic math is that the angular size of an object is twice the inverse tangent of the radius of the object divided by its distance. Or, in other words, the angular distance is two times the inverse tangent of r over d. It, yeah, as I said, it's simple, but it's also trigonometry, which some people really don't like. 
For the average distance to the moon, I get a value of about 0.52 degrees, which is the correct known value of about half a degree for the moon's angular size from Earth. It varies, but we'll use this number. To figure out the closest that Mars can get, take the aphelion of Earth's orbit and the perihelion of Mars's orbit, in other words, the farthest that Earth gets from the Sun and the closest that Mars gets to the Sun. That's your distance. Put in Mars diameter and you get an angular size of 0.0071 degrees, or about 26 arc seconds, where there are 3600 arc seconds in a degree, so the Moon is about 1800 arc seconds across. Putting it succinctly, the largest that Mars can appear to Earth is about 1.4% the size of the Moon. That's on its current orbit. To get it to appear as large as the Moon, it has to be about twice as far away as the Moon. Since I used geometry for the first part, I'll use the ratio wave for the second part. Roughly, Mars is about two times the diameter of Earth's Moon. For small angles, these things are pretty linear. So, since Mars is about twice the size, it will appear to be the same size if it's about twice as far away. In actuality, the closest that Mars gets to Earth is about 142 times the distance between Earth and the Moon. For this episode, there is no puzzler, but if you have an idea for the puzzler for the next episode, that episode being on David Sarita's views of physics and cosmology, please send them in. There are three announcements for this episode. First is that I have started a new blog called WND Watch. That's W, the letter W, N as in nice, and D as in die. Uh, for some reason, that's the first word starts with a D that I get the uh, dog. We'll go with dog. So WND Watch. It's at wndwatch.wordpress.com. It's fairly different from my other stuff in tone and length and content. Posts so far are somewhere around 400 words as opposed to 1,200 words. And it's basically me ranting. Carl Mamer describes World Net Daily, or WND, as, and this is paraphrasing, if you're really bored with reality, go check out World Net Daily. I was banned from the comments at World Net Daily for saying that a priest who helped to kidnap a girl and shuffle her from one custodial mother to a different country to another custodial mother, who was an ex-gay, um, I said that this priest was correct for having been prosecuted and found guilty of kidnapping and child trafficking and all that other stuff. So I was banned for commenting on that, um, but the person who called me a pedophile for supporting the priest's uh, indictment and guilty verdict, um, that person was not banned. So this blog is me commenting about a few of their more ridiculous articles, as well as some of the more ridiculous commenters on the site. Um, these would be comments that I would post, but of course I can't because I've been banned. Feel free to check it out, or not, but I thought that I would put it out there that this is a new side-side-side-side-side project. The second announcement is that later tonight, speaking of Carl Mamer, the conspiracy skeptic himself will be interviewing me about my TAM experience and my new blog, WND Watch. I'm guessing that it'll either go out at the very end of the month as a July episode, or next month as his August episode. I'll, of course, post the blog, the Facebook page, the Twitter thingamajigger, and uh, I'll announce it in the episode of the podcast that follows his putting out as a podcast. 
Finally, the third announcement on this somewhat shorter episode but very long announcement list is to thank everyone who came to the podcast meetup at TAM, everyone who went to the workshop at TAM, and everyone who said hi and talked with me at TAM. I had a great time, and I hope that you all did as well. That wraps up this 81st edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I do hope that you enjoyed it and learned something at the same time. For more information about this podcast, please use the feedback form on the website or send an email to podcast at sjrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, the blog post for the episode, the Facebook page for the podcast, or you can even tweet me at pseudoastro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. Finally, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. It really does make a difference. If you liked it, also tell your friends and family, several random people you'll never meet in real life, and create many false accounts. And you should then comment that this podcast is great, give it a good review, and rate it on all these other places. And I'm rambling now, so shalom. Shalom.